Talking Tech Policy is recorded on Ngunnawal lands. We pay our respects to the traditional custodians of this land and acknowledge their continuing connection to country and the ongoing contributions of their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, who were, among many things, the first Australian tech innovators. How do we ensure technology makes our lives better? Hi, I'm Johanna Weaver, host of the Talking Tech Policy podcast. I'm a lawyer, a diplomat, and until recently, I was Australia's expert to the United Nations on cyber issues. I've since joined the Australian National University, where I've established the Tech Policy Design Centre. We've launched this podcast because we want to encourage more people to get involved in discussions about how technology is shaping our lives. Hi everyone, welcome to this special issue of Talking Tech Policy, which is recorded in the margins of SICON, the conference of the NATO Cyber Cooperative Defence Centre of Excellence in Estonia, Tallinn. At that conference, I met the spokesperson of a group called Cyber Partisans. Depending on who you are, cyber partisans are alternatively described as a hacktivist group, a digital resistance movement, or according to the government of Belarus, they are classified as a terrorist organisation. I'll let you listen and make your own decision. If you're someone who has been following events in Belarus closely, you might want to skip over the next two minutes. If you're not, I'm just going to give a very, very high level potted history, three decades of Belarusian history in less than two minutes. So like many countries in Eastern Europe, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, Belarus declared its independence. And in 1994, Belarus held free and fair democratic elections, installing into power President Lukashenko. Since then, Belarus has had many uh, elections of varying degrees of free and fair, uh, progressively becoming less free and less fair. Most recently, in 2020, there were presidential elections where President Lukashenko, miraculously, again, was elected by a landslide, despite the fact that there was a very popular and credible opposition party running against him. After the results were announced, there were widespread protests throughout Belarus, and over 8,000 people were detained arbitrarily by government authorities. Many of them were beaten and tortured. According to Human Rights Watch, there are over 800 people who remain political prisoners in Belarus today. It's really important to note that neither the EU or the US recognise Lukashenko as the democratically elected president of Belarus. They found that the elections in 2020 were not free or fair. And in March this year, Australia sanctioned Lukashenko for providing material support to Russia's war in Ukraine, Belarus being strategically positioned between Russia and Ukraine. I wanted to tell this story for two reasons. One, I think it's important for people to hear what's happening in Belarus and the role that technology is playing. But second, because for a lot of this podcast, we talk about protecting and promoting democracy and freedoms and using technologies to help us to do that. 
And this is a story of a country that has lost its democracy and has lost its freedoms and is using technology to fight to get them back. Now, about one minute into the recording, there is about 10 seconds where the audio gets a bit scratchy. I encourage you to persevere. It really is only a short uh, little section. Unfortunately, we weren't able to clean this up. But I think you'll find it is a conversation worth listening to. Okay, so folks, we have a really special treat for you today. I am in Tallinn in Estonia, uh, where I'm here for the NATO Cyber Cooperative Cyber Defence Centre of Excellence, SICON. And I have met the most extraordinary woman that I have pigeonholed and she has kindly agreed to sit with me in a cafe and record um, a short podcast for you. So, um, Yelena, uh, Juliana, would you like to introduce yourself? Um, so who you are and, and who you work for? Sure. Uh, my name is Yuliana Shemitovets and I am a spokesperson for Belarusian cyber partisans. I'm a Belarusian activist and cyber partisans is a hacktivist collective that is resistant dictatorship Lukashenko's regime in Belarus. And can you tell us for listeners who maybe haven't heard of cyber partisans before, who are you and what do you stand for? I mean, you just mentioned there about um, Lukashenko's regime, but mm -hmm. I think your mission is perhaps a little bit broader. Sure. Especially became broader since the war started in Ukraine. Uh, but let me explain to you what cyber partisans stand for. So, Belarusian cyber partisans were founded in September 2020 after the presidential elections in Belarus were rigged and there were pro peaceful protests against these elections, against Lukashenko being in power for 27 years. Unfortunately, people were brutally beating up. 40,000 people went through prisons tor uh, and tortures there, sometimes rapes, inhuman conditions. In prison cells and as a response to that um, some hacktivists published video on national TV in the internet showing uh, video clips of how people were beating up by policemen without any obviously lawful orders um, and that's the moment when cyber partisans were formed um, they their first actions were pretty symbolic but then since the repressions continued it became even worse in Belarus people were oppressed they couldn't openly show up the dissatisfaction with the unlawful elections, with the Lukashenko's rule. Uh, so they decided to be more active and to start resisting the regime more active. Uh, so that's when the core team grew a little bit and there were around 15 people who started attacking the regime. Um, there are several types of attacks. They, the first type is to gather information that includes crimes that were uh, done towards Belarusian citizens by the regime people, by the re people who either followed or work officially for the regime. And the second type of attacks were to directly attack the state-run companies that have some um, bad reputation, again, doing some schemes for the regime or having bad conditions for workers. Uh, or in the case of the railways, uh, several partisans attacked it to stop the movement of Russian military trains. Their goal is to remove Lukashenko, to transfer 
to have a transfer of power and to build a democratic state, of course, keeping the sovereignty of Belarus. Since mm. we're for, since we're neighbors with Russia, it is absolutely essential to stay independent from Russia and keep our sovereignty and independence. And the third goal to make sure that independent institutions are restored, that we have independent court, independent media, and independent inst institutions, uh, so Belarusians can live in a fair state. And of course, it will benefit not only Belarusians inside Belarus, but also the neighboring countries like Poland, Latvia, Lithuania. We don't want Russian or Belarusian tanks on the border with these states. And I mean, you know, to me, it's I spend a lot of time talking about the fact that we need to defend the existing rules based international order. And so to meet somebody who is actively fighting to have democracy in your country, um, I just have so many questions that I want to put to you. And I, I guess the first one is, how did you get involved with cyber partisans? How did you become their spokesperson? So I am uh, an activist since probably I was a teenager. It's you know Lukashenko in power since I was um, since I was born pretty much, and I always saw this unfairness. He is not only the person who ordered to kill opposition leaders in um, in the beginning of his rule uh, in the two uh, thousands. Uh, so it was it was in the area, and if you want in the air, and if you wanted to, uh, you know learn politics or participate in in the political life or even organize some civil society movement you couldn't do it there are many restrictions in belarus mm. so I, I took it really personal i think because the elections happened when i was a teenager in 2010 there were a lot of protests something similar that happened in 2020 it was that not that broadcasted to other countries so it mm. wasn't that big as in 2020 but it touched me enormously and since that time I was trying either to participate in protest or to um, support people who are forming some political movements that resist Lukashenko. I wanted to start a political science, so I couldn't do it in Belarus. I went to the United States um, from a master's in political science. I joined some opposition group there, and I was working with a prominent uh, figure, political figure, uh, Dmitry Shigelsky, uh, since 2017. Um, so he became a political representative of the separative movement, and separative movement, which means resistance in English, has three groups, including cyber partisans. Mm -hmm. uh, they also have two other groups. Uh, one is preparing people for protests that so that they're not going to be beaten up by policemen. And the second one, uh, conduct physical impact operations on physical occasions, like policemen bases at night and things like that. A lot of these people now went to Ukraine uh, to fight on the Ukrainian side. Mm. So there is also a political body in this uh, separative movement. We have a program, we are writing a program. Um, still on how the transfer of power should happen because it's a very complicated issue. Who needs to be prosecuted um, from the regime side? Who potentially won't be prosecuted? Like some base documents that will be can be used by the court or can be used by the institution that will come to power so we don't have chaos and and to prevent Russian forces coming in, flowing money and organizing some pro-Russian parties that will take over 
uh, the power in the future. So we do want to make sure that it's not going to happen. And for that reason, we also have a lot of conversation with other opposition groups and cyber partisans actually also participating in the form of, you know, supporting one idea or rejecting idea. And I'm as a spokesperson presenting their views and understanding how this process should work. So I am. I was working with this person, Dmitry Shigelsky, coming back to the story, and he asked me to be a spokesperson for cyber partisans when they became pretty big after their first attack on Ministry of Internal Affairs, when they got access to passport information of every citizen in Belarus, including those with restrictive access. Uh, he, even though I was working internally already, I was writing a manifesto, was writing some documents, organizing some events. Uh, he asked me to be a public figure. I first said no, mm. I was afraid, but then a couple of months after he reached out again, he's like, we couldn't find anyone else, please do this, we trust you, we have a skill set that is required, of course it doesn't mean that you will be approved by several partisans, you know, they still needed to talk to me, which makes sense, but you know, I know you're perfect for this, please do it. And the second time, since some of my friends got detained, I realized if I'm not going to do everything possible, I know it sounds idealistic, but I wouldn't forgive myself. Um, so I decided to try it. I decided to do it because I understood the importance of explaining what cyber partisans are doing, that, not, that there are not some random hackers that conduct any malicious, they haven't conducted any malicious actions mm. since 2020. It's only focusing on people who are working with the regime. And to actually explain, you know, what it means for Belarusians to have cyber partisans, what it means for Belarusians to resist such a um, brutal regime that um, built an oppressive machine, that was building an oppressive machine for 27 years against its own citizens. Um, so. My job started probably in 2021, in around October of 2021, uh, when I organized a conference with Harvard and Yale with amazing Gabriella Coleman, who is a huge expert on hacktivism. It was very interesting to discuss other groups, to understand how cyber partisans are different from other movements, what we can learn from other movements, and also to present uh, what cyber partisans are doing and are planning to do. Mm. So I think, you know, when I hear the word Belarusia, I think uh, Russian client state. Um, that is um, my experience of engaging uh, with uh, Belarusians at the UN, for example. And so again, this, this perspective that there are people from Belarusia who, are, who have a vision that is a very different vision um, is it is so inspiring to hear that articulated and you talk about being asked and being saying no the first time and being afraid and then I think you use the word it's it's idealistic but I couldn't forgive myself and I would say I don't find that idealistic I find it incredibly courageous um, that you what you do and um, and it, perhaps that's a nice way to talk a little bit about who the cyber partisans are. So who are the people who are doing this work? What 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 um, what types of people are they? Sure. Uh, before I start describing them, I want to make a comment about 
Belarusian people at the United Nations. I also get a chance to talk to them several times. So don't judge Belarusians by them. I know what kind of representatives are there working since I'm based in New York. Uh, I had several occasions to, to get in touch. Uh, as for the cyber partisans, uh, they're all anonymous and we have a set of protocols um, of you know, who can join, how can join, and what kind of rules they need to follow. Before the war started, there were only Belarusians in the group. There were around 35 people. Um, all of them are from the IT sector, all of them IT professionals. Some used to work or are still working as developers or pen testers. None of them had actually any experience in hacktivism. They learned everything on the go. They learned everything um, in the open source materials, YouTube, lectures, wow. uh, anything that is in the internet. And what they told me, what helped them a lot is just practicing. <laughs> some things failed enormously, some things, you know, obviously were, were great when they achieved great results, uh, but practicing really helped them. But as for any questions they had, they would go just to the internet. Everything is out there. Um, after the war started, a lot of foreigners reached out to cyber partisans asking how they can help them. And they didn't, they did accept some. Um, they told me now there are around 60 people. Still, uh, a lot of Belarusians joined the movement, of course, because it's easier to verify people, it's easier to just understand mm. who you're working with. As for the foreigners, um, there are some legal complications in this case. Uh, cyber partisans do not urge them to participate in direct attacks, just not to create any legal complications for them. Um, but there are just many, so many tasks that cyber partisans are working on, so they continuously need help, uh, meaning like people that can help them. Uh, resources, of course, too, but people are also very important. So um, some are working on developing tools that will be later used in the direct attacks. Mm. Some people work on analyzing data. We have so many data, so many databases that, like terabytes of data that still need to be um, searched, properly searched, connected, analyzed to see all the crimes that the regime is uh, committed. And we are working with some international organizations that either work on imposing sanctions or they're starting crimes um, under universal jurisdiction, uh, mm -hmm. the starting cases under universal jurisdiction, um, meaning crimes against humanity that the, the regime committed. Uh, so in that sense, they're always needed, like people who, can, who have time and can analyze this. And they're also work on uh, creating safe applications for safe communication in Belarus, which is very important. Uh, cyber partisans created a partisan telegram, which looks like this regular telegram. But what happens in Belarus right now, actually, that people can be randomly searching the public transportation. And if policemen see that they follow some opposition group or they're messaging and criticize um, the officials, they can be detained. So what cyber partisans create is this telegram that looks and works exactly the same. It's open source code, so anyone can go and check that. Uh, but one feature that it has is that you can set up a code, which a regular part, uh, telegram can have, and then if you're detained, you give a fake code that will automatically delete your messages that you marked previously. It will remove your subscriptions to any opposition and independent media. Wow. So, you know, you can't be at least detained for this reason. Hmm. And then you, in many cases, you can let, let be let go. And we have cases like that. 
So it is very also important to work on the updates, to work on the application that can work on the iOS systems. For now, they developed it only for Android and computers. Um, so again, that also requires a lot of efforts. And for that reason, the, the many, many foreigners work on things like that as well. Mm. And so, you know, this, I don't want to belabor this point, but the cyber partisans that you are the spokesperson for, you don't actually know who they are. I don't actually know, yes, but it feels like I know them for, mm. for so long. I, I can't wait. I hope this day will come that I can, you know, see them and hug mm. them. It might not happen. They understand the risks that they're taking, even after the transition of power. There might be some, you know, friction where we are not sure that Lukashenko number two is not coming, you know, into mm. power. Transition periods are always difficult, but we need to have this chance. Um, so they understand the risk. They understand that they might they might stay anonymous forever, and they're fine with that as long as the goal is achieved. But I don't know them. Yes, I can only laugh from some of the jokes that they're sharing with me, or you know, the, the their opinion on things. But I don't know exactly who they are, and I don't want to know. To be honest, I don't want to um, have risks for myself or for them. Mm. And, and the risk is very, very real, right? So um, in Belarusia, Belarusia the, um, this is a crime punishable with capital punishment, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Belarus is the only European country that still has capital punishment. And cyber partisans, together with Svetlana Tikhanovska office, who is an official leader of the Democratic Belarus, uh, as well as with some other politician, I believe Pavel Latushka, he's also label, labeled as a terrorist uh, group, the mm -hmm. same way cyber-partisans are. And of, if you're part of a terrorist group, yes, you can face a capital punishment in Belarus. And we know that some of cyber-partisans are still in Belarus, so mm -hmm. some people from the group are still in Belarus, from the separative movement, which also labeled as terrorist group. Uh, so they risk a lot. Mm -hmm. They do risk a lot. Yeah. And I, I know it's trite to say it, but you know, sitting here looking at you um, in in Tallinn, a city that has dealt with its own levels of oppression and come out the other side, but you hear this phrase, um, one person's terrorist is another one's freedom fighter. And, <laughs> and looking at you here, um, it really is extraordinary to think that in your home country, you are declared a terrorist. I mean, it, it's, it's amazing. It is funny, you know, the government before they tried kind of, um, article recruit me in a sense because I have good education mm. I've been exposed to you know American systems I have a good education in Belarus as well one of the best universities probably the best university and you know they kind of um, tried it to recruit me but I'm like I can't you know I can't work for the government mm. for sure so but they you know gave me so many compliments but now I'm enemy of the state less so than the compliments of course so it, it, it is it is crazy but you know I'm abroad people in Belarus are much more under danger uh, but um, you know those partisans that do some actions inside Belarus or even in the cyberspace, they're heroes, mm. for sure. Mm. Well, I would say um, you are as well. <laughs> um, can we talk a little bit more about the activities of cyber partisans? So can you give some examples of the type of, um, if, it, if it's hacktivism, hacktivism to me seems um, not substantial enough for what you guys are, are fighting for, but um, can you give some examples? Sure, so I think the the first 
most uh, impactful operation was the attack on the Minister of Internal Affairs. Mm -hmm. Actually, to connect to the internal networks, um, it became possible with the help of people on the ground who at night or at some other point got inside and um, connected cyber partisans to internal networks. And that's when cyber partisans get access to all passport information of every citizen in Belarus. Uh, they also got access to the white trap calls in Belarus. Every person who's working for the regime has been reported by the regime, by some hmm. other department. Uh, so they got access to this white trap calls and they published these calls on their YouTube channel. Some of them have English subtitles, so I can share it after. Yeah. And it's uh, the proof that some of the orders were even coming directly from Lukashenko to beat up people, to put people in human conditions. And in some of these videos, people are, you know, having the, those policemen, those people who are beating up peaceful protesters, they're actually excited about that. They think that have a full right to do this. They think of themselves uh, as above anyone else. They don't serve the people. They just want to oppress these people. They, they think, you know, Belarusians are their slaves. Yeah. They're like openly talking about that. And also it was important to show Belarusians what kind of people are working for the regime, what values they have, what ethics they have, what moral values they have. Um, because before people didn't even know who these people are. Mm. All the policemen, agents, special agents, KGB agents, they knew everything about Belarusians, but Belarusians didn't know about those mm. guys. Now they do with the help of cyber partisans. Um, then cyber partisans got access also to the border control system, uh, which has information everyone who crossed the border, foreigners and Belarusians in the last 15 years, which also helped to um, to reveal some spies working in Western countries mm. on behalf of Belarusian government. Uh, that was also very helpful. And one another attack that was pretty big is the attack on the state-run company, Megalev Transmash, that had awful conditions and participated in the schemes to um, provide money for the regime, for Lukashenko. He even had to make some comments uh, after this attack. Usually. The regime does not talk about cyber partisans. They n never mm. like to acknowledge that it was done by some group of people. They can't even believe in that. They think that it's either CIA or, I don't know, some mm. Mossad, anyone, FSB, someone who was saying, but not cyber partisans. Um, they can't believe that just a small group of people being fully motivated without any additional resources can achieve such results. They think it's either a snitch inside of these um, mm. systems or it's an outsider, someone like Couldn't big. possibly be kind people of from Just people from Belarus, yeah. like just regular hacktivists in a sense. So th th that was that was pretty big. But then I think one of the most recent attacks that um, was covered in media and was I think um, acknowledged by many, many hacktivists and many people in Ukraine is the attack on the railway system. Mm. Uh, the first public attack happened in January of 2022 when Russian troops came to the territory of Belarus to have joint exercises uh, before they declared an official war. Uh, so several partisans at that point attacked the railways, uh, they deleted backups, they tried to affect the systems that are responsible for running freight, commercial trains. Mm -hmm. um, they did 
didn't want to touch emergency systems, signaling system, or automation system just not to create emergency situations for ordinary citizens. That's actually number one rule for cyber partisans not to affect ordinary citizens. Mm. So they, of course, don't want to give any additional problems for um, Belarusians that already suffered a lot. Um, but it's also important to, you know, continue having their support Belarusians love cyber partisans because mm. for a long time um, they are one of the only groups that's showing actual results inside Belarus that show that you know the resistance didn't stop it, it's giving hope people and not not losing it in a sense we have so much feedback like that like guys I would I don't know I would I would be so depressed if if not for you um, so in that sense, of course, it's, it's it's very important not to to affect ordinary citizens and as much as possible. That they do this. Of course, mistakes can happen, but that's like number one rule. And in that sense, the attack we can't ever evaluate is if it, it reached the goal to stop the movement of Russian military troops. It looked like it indirectly affected a little, but it didn't stop fully for sure. Um, that's why the cyber partisans had some conversations with people who used to work for the railway system because some people think that you know an attack it's such a magic thing that is so easy to to conduct like this you got into the system and you know where to go and you remove everything and then that's it done it's actually really complicated you don't know how the system is operated where is the domain control what is you know where the database you need to work on because if you delete some database they have backups they can restore it you know how to be impactful is sometimes really hard to understand uh, so they had these conversations with people with expertise in railway system and then when russia declared declared a war in on a special operations on a special yeah. operation <laughs> yeah, yeah of course yes i was listening to this um um, declaration by Putin, it was horrible. Mm. Anyway, um, when it happened, um, the separative moment that mm -hmm. cyber partisans are part of, uh, right away announced that they will do everything possible to have Ukrainians, because Ukraine and Belarus have the same enemy, it's the imperial regime, it's Kremlin regime in Russia, who doesn't recognize Belarus and U Ukraine as separate nations. Mm. They can't let us you know, be independent and democratic and get out from their sphere of interest. And they also probably don't want to give a good example for the Russians. Uh, so in that sense, of course, from moral perspective, from, I, I guess, strategic perspective and from historic perspective, we never had problems with Ukraine or any wars with Ukraine, unlike with Russia, with whom we had many wars and actually an interesting fact more people died uh, in wars with russia on belarusian side than in the second world war um, so in that sense of course they they right away started thinking how we can help mm. and um what they did they again attacked the railway system two times but this t this time they knew what to do mm. and they turned off the automation system and the the belarusian side couldn't restore it for two days with the attacks on the ground, some partisans also attacked the railways on the ground during this time. The actually the movement of Russian military trains, as we learned then from some reports, stopped completely. They found some workarounds. They used commercial trains. They used gondola cars, which is very dangerous. Uh, but they, it was too risky for them to use the military. They officially like the the, the trains that are created for for purpose to move transportation to move. 
um, gasoline, rockets, tanks, and stuff like mm. that. And that factor definitely uh, contributed to the fact that uh, the attack on Kiev area stopped because the Russians couldn't build up proper logistics. Of course, it's most most importantly, it's Ukrainian soldiers that were fighting um, in Kiev, near Kiev, and, and all these cities that are close to the Belarusian border. Uh, but you know, several partisans also in that sense helped. Um, we do hope we helped and we, we got some great feedback from Ukrainians, which we are really grateful for that logistics is very important during war and since Russians couldn't build it, they didn't feel safe mm. uh, in Belarus. And I think, you know, it surprises me, but it's still a conversation very live here at SICON. Um, of you know whether or not cyber operations can rise to the level of having you know, physical real-world impact and this to me is such an example of how a cyber operation to interrupt the railways for a period of two days at a key point in the Russian invasion of Ukraine having a very clear impact on um, the outcome uh, physical outcome on the ground and so you know for me that's sort of case in point and hopefully we can put that argument to bed um it's true i actually it's it's an interesting argument of like what cyber operations can achieve like mm. what's important can we have a cyber war in the nearest future discussing it with the people who are part of cyber parties and they say that we don't see it in the like near future maybe some state-run Hacktivist groups, hack, they call hacktivists, but it's basically state-run hackers, might achieve bigger results, but it's also not feasible for now. It's still complicated. They still can restore systems if they have good, like if companies and railway systems have good cybersecurity, which the Belarus cyber uh, railways didn't have. Mm. Then it, it is really hard to have a long-term impact that mm. you know you can switch off lights or electricity for like month it's not feasible for now mm. as mm. cyber partisans discovered mm. and what's what is interesting is the the use and particularly that we have seen in Ukraine of cyber operations in conjunction with kinetic operations or more traditional military mm -hmm. operations mm -hmm. and this idea of cyber war being something that happens off on one side and we're only going to have cyber war without the kinetic physical aspect um, you know, what we're seeing in Ukraine is that's that's just not the case and General Nakasone who gave a keynote speech today um, at SICON um, or actually maybe uh, it was the Estonian president I forget one of the <laughs> one of them made the point that actually cyber operations and um, physical military operations now go hand in hand um, and I think when we we, we sort of need to shift our thinking in the way that cyber operations work and the the um, the uh, cyber partisans uh, impact on the, the railways is a we, really good example. We, we tend to agree with that. Uh, we yes, that is a good example how uh, physical operations help the cyber operations mm -hmm. and cyber uh, cyber partisans achieve great results without sometimes physical impact yeah. as well but it didn't achieve the major goal of removing Lukashenko. So in that sense, they join efforts with people on the ground and understand the importance of people's support, of large protests, of people ready um, that want to raise the risks for the regime because mm. you know people who work for Lukashenko, they're ready to kill, but they're not ready to die. Um, mm. So in that sense, you need to show some teeth and without it, 
you can't remove such um, successful and brutal dictators like Lukashenko. Mm. So I, I want to talk about um, what cyber partisans end goal and how you see yourselves getting there. But just before we do that, can we touch You've spoken about, you know, the number one rule of cyber partisans is um, minimise impact on civilians. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about the, the sort of legal and ethical frameworks? You also mentioned that some of the foreign members of cyber partisans aren't directly involved in, in uh, the actual attacks. Can you just talk us through that? Sure. I, I have a lot of questions from Western countries asking, you know, how legal the, their work is and what if cyber partisans are operating from a third countries that are yeah. part of European Union, let's say. So our answer to that is that, first of all, we're not funded by any state. So yeah. it's we only operate um, on donations coming from anonymous sources. Um, many people, most people are volunteers, including myself. And um, then there is there is like there is a set of rule there is a set of rules. Um, first of all, yes, we don't um, we don't uh, impact regular citizens. Uh, people need to follow this rule. Also, the very sensitive information on regular citizens is stored separate uh, separately on isolated server that none of the new members can have access to it. Mm -hmm. Only core members that operate since 2020, who are the most trustworthy people, have access to these databases. So it's really important to protect these data as much as possible. Even though this, this data set contains people who work for the regime, but of course they're also Belarusians and we'll have to live with them in the nearest future. We'll, try, we'll need to find some kind of dialogue and balance that can help us restore the state. Um, so this is also important to protect the data. They also follow some, you know, rules of not um, de-anonymizing themselves. So mm -hmm. they try to be as secure and anonymous as possible. And also they, um, what I wanted to say is that um, the um, the risks for people operating in other countries, yes, they're high, but. I think that it's a good time to say that um, some Western countries actually forgot what it's like to fight dictators, and we understand some questions and the legal aspects, and it is complicated, but we are open to discuss this, we're open to get some criticism, uh, but we can't just stop doing what we're doing. Um, we want to live in a free country, we want to come back to European family. We are a European country, Belarus is a European country, and we want to restore independent institutions. And we also would love to work on some cyber policies, you know, how the government needs to be run, how the cybersecurity needs to work, instead of worrying how to, you know, protect our lives in Belarus. Mm. Um, so in that sense, cyber partisans fully understand the responsibility and the huge responsibility they have now, especially um, once they obtained so much of uh, sensitive information and there are also another another rule I guess in cooperation with other opposition groups like Svetlana Tikhanovska, like um, Pavel Latushka, other um, civil society initiatives they um, build telegram bots for them mm -hmm. so they can still be in touch with people who are still inside Belarus uh, they give um, security advice on how to I don't know, operate in the internet how to search how to be in touch with people how to communicate uh, how not to expose your identity if you're still in Belarus 
um, they also see a goal to unify opposition. Uh, opposition in Belarus is unfortunately is not unified right now, and system beats system, and we do understand that. So it's it's an interesting for cyber partisans because they they happen to be in the middle of everything. They are in touch with everyone, journalists, civil society, politicians. So they try to negotiate and they try to bring everyone together, explaining, you know, we have the actually one goal and we need to achieve it and we need to be together in that. Um, so that's kind of a, a work for them besides the attacks. And for that reason, of course, there are more Belarusians than, you know, foreigners because that's what we're doing for our own country, for our own nation. Uh, so that is a kind of a goal, try to be very careful. They're also very um, careful in any comments or criticism of political leaders because they understand some of the things it's better to discuss internally rather to, you know, fight uh, in media. Um, so they are, they're very careful. They, in political view, I would call them like very centrist, you know, let's uh, let's do this. We, we have some democratic values. We have this shared understanding. So we have to work together. And can you, um, can you take us forward uh, five years and describe uh, what Belarus, Belarusia looks like uh, in, an, in an ideal world? Uh, with your efforts actually seeing fruit? Well, let's start with the Ukraine winning this war and yeah. Russia being weakened because um, it's very important for us that Russia not going to pay attention to what's happening in Belarus and not sending any troops mm. to you know protect, I guess, their own territory that they will call if there are some uh, movements of trying to get a democratic state. Um, so that is like a number one priority to help Ukrainians right now, to help Ukrainian hacktivists, to help Ukrainian um, um, soldiers or anyone working for the Ukrainian defense because cyber partisans provide information on Belarusian soldiers to them or any movement of Russian military troops inside Belarus, which is very important. They also support the Belarusian battalion named after Kostus Kalinowski, who is fighting in Ukraine right now. Uh, so this is number one. But in five years, uh, we do believe that there, the transfer of power will already start. Um, so there are some set of actions that need to be taken before even new elections can happen. It probably will take around four months, four to six months. Because if you don't have independent institutions or let's say independent court that um, can take a case of something happens during elections times because it's mm. very still, probably will be chaotic. Um, there is no way it can be fair uh, and um, potential not even recognized by Western countries. So in that sense, we first of all need to restore the court, um, to restore independent inst institutions and also media. So it's not owned by, you know, let's say one person or one oligarch or businessman or politician, because it needs to show every everyone who will want to go for a presidency or preferably we would love to build a parliam parliamentary system. Uh, so that is the goal. So in five years, I hope to see a fully um, built parliamentary system. We had an office president. I would love to see several parties, even maybe if people who still believe or still follow some of the Lukashenko's agenda. It's fine, we understand in democracy, you will have to work with people that you don't like. Mm. And that is something that we also explain to Belarusians, um, trying not to create this, you know, two-sided notion of either you are, you know, following Lukashenko, which is around probably 20, 
percent of people still are, or you were like following opposition leaders and you know you hate each other, you have to agree on something. First of all, to agree on it's very important to defend the, the land and the nation having Russia as a, a neighboring state even in five years even if Putin is gone even if Russia is weakened I don't believe this imperial, imperialistic mentality will go away mm. so quickly so we still need to work with um, Ukraine and Baltic states that's actually in our plans too to build up a Baltic um, Black Sea Union we call it Mm -hmm. So it's a union with Baltic states and Ukraine, maybe some other countries can join, like Moldova, Romania, um, that um, to, to protect ourselves. We mm -hmm. can't rely you know, on the European Union all the time, we can't rely on the United States, we can't rely on uh, NATO. You know, they do care about their own countries and their own systems, but countries that are actually neighboring with Russia, they do understand the, uh, the risks, so it would be a strategic um, right a strategically right decision and geopolitically right decision to build this and to have this union and belarus in the center of it needs to be there mm. um and then my group would love some of them might go into politics but i asked them before they're like not really into that even though some had to wear this hat now when they make decisions where they negotiate with political leaders some might be there but many people just want to work on the cyber security they understood mm. how the system is badly run in belarus they understood the best practice what needs to be installed so the data is protected and the systems are protected in belarus and some have uh, i crazy ideas of building a silicon valley so-called in <laughs> belarus because there are so many it specialists and like to um work with academia abroad to work with companies yeah. abroad to have this you know exchange programs and stuff like that it's not that far-fetched when you think of how powerful ukraine is in terms exactly, of exactly right the, their reputation and, and also to to work in some digital tools like i'm an estonian talent i'm really mm. impressed how easy to apply to anything in the government how yep. it's digitalized how it's convenient and uh, that's something that definitely we're interested in and to introduce in belarus you know there is a chance for belarus to actually become you know one of the fast developing countries because we we can have this fast shift where people are still very motivated where people understand the importance of these tools where people are psychologically ready for that uh, so in that sense we, we have good chances with the population being in IT sector a lot of people mm. either are studying or working in IT sector that, that that's definitely the the priority and also you know technologies like blockchain can be used for elections again yeah. Fair elections is such a, an important issue for us, uh, so that's that's kind of a future we're we're aiming at, and we see it, and we're working towards it for sure. Well, you know, Juliana, I I really um, hope that in five years' time we can meet again uh, in Belarusa. Belarusia. I'm sorry, my pronunciation is absolutely terrible. I'm very sleep deprived for everyone who's listening, um, but I hope that we can meet. Um, in Belarusia and that we can have a follow-up to this uh, in a free and democratic country. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for the opportunity to speak up. It's really great that people are so understanding. People want to help. Um, different organizations want to help that you know I see here in Estonia and Tallinn. So thank you all for, for your support. We continue fighting. That's you know the, the beliefs we have and that's the road we have that we and the goals that we have to achieve. Yeah. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you.
Talking Tech Policy is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. This episode was produced by Jack Fox. Thanks also to Ben Gowdy for his research and post-production support. We would be most grateful if you could subscribe, rate the pod, leave us a review, or perhaps give us a shout out on social media or around the water cooler at work. All of these things help us to get the word out and the more interest we have, the better we can make the podcast. Please also do let us know if there's a topic that you would like us to cover in future episodes. Thank you for listening. And until next time, get in touch and get involved.